And welcome back. This is Daily Buddhism, audio show number 64, recorded March 7th, 2014. My name is Brian Shell, and I'm your host for the show. You can find the text, as well as all links mentioned in this program and all past episodes, on the website at www.dailybuddhism.com. If you aren't signed up for the email newsletter, go to www.dailybuddhism.com and fix that oversight right now. It's free and easier than ever to sign up. If you enjoy the podcast and the website, don't forget to buy the books. My book, The Five-Minute Buddhist, and the sequel, The Five-Minute Buddhist Meditates, are now available on Amazon, Nook, iTunes, and as a paperback. You can get it from any place that sells books, so ask at your local library or independent bookstore if they don't already have it on the shelf. It's essentially the best of the daily Buddhism. You can get it in pretty much any format you want. Go to www.dailybuddhism.com book and follow the links. If you've already picked up a copy, please leave a review on whichever site you got the book from. Also, if you enjoy this free podcast, head on over to the iTunes store and leave a review for the show. I'd really appreciate your support there. And now, let's get on with this week's show. Our first question this week involves Alcoholics Anonymous, titled 12 Steps, Higher Powers, and Buddhism. This one originally appeared on the blog on September 10th, 2009, and one of our very last catch-up posts. A reader wrote in, I appreciate all the hard work that you spend in spiritually enriching the lives of myself and I'm sure countless others. It's a matter of life and death for me as I'm on a path of recovery from addiction. I'm unable to embrace a higher power via the Christian concept because of issues in the past having felt that God was not there for me during a most dire time of need, so an alternative is a serious need for me. This is turning into a different communication than I had intended, but regarding recovery in the 12 steps where your higher power takes an active role in your life. For example, and the reader includes a list, restoring us to sanity, turning our our will and lives over to the care of God as we understand Him, admitting our character defects to him and asking him to remove them, and we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And the writer continues, Does Buddhism have the notion of a higher power that personally intervenes in one's life or lends guidance on a personal level? One that will actively be on the receiving end of turning your will and lives over and guide us? Is there a God one can achieve conscious contact with, or indeed even has a will for our lives and can bestow power to carry it out? If these concepts do not apply, what might be a counterpart in Buddhism? How might one apply such concepts within the framework of Buddhism? Or more broadly, how may Buddhism assist one in achieving the same goals and aid in recovery within or even totally removed from the 12-step concept. And my answer. We covered this topic once before in a guest post, which I will link to in the show notes, entitled Buddhism and the 12-Step Process. I would definitely suggest reading that before continuing. Although there are groups of Buddhists who have something that could be called a higher power, most do not. 
Buddhism, more than any other religion, emphasizes personal responsibility. You got yourself into this trouble, and you're the only one that can get yourself out. Regarding the quotes in your quotation, I'd say there's nothing there that could not be dealt with in Buddhism. You quote, restoring us to sanity. Well, that's pretty much why we're all Buddhists in the first place, isn't it? Your quote, admitting our character defects and asking him to remove them. Well, meditation and reflection is all about learning about ourselves and seeking to change things that need changing. The only difference is that you must take on the responsibility of change yourself, which, if you're coming from the there-is-no-higher-power point of view, you realize this already. And your other question there, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Again, this is meditation and reflection upon our own enlightenment. And lastly, you mentioned turning our will and lives over to the care of God as we understand Him. Well, this is the big one. If you want to follow the steps perfectly, then you need to substitute something else for God. For Buddhists, this could be your own inner self, the universe as a whole, maybe nothingness, or even the concept of Buddha himself as a wise teacher. And yet the wording of that line is problematic. The whole point of Buddhism is to gain control over your will in life, not to give it to some abstraction. You need to work this one out for yourself. I read many other social media sites, including Dig and Reddit, both of which have a very vocal group of atheists. Every time the topic of Alcoholics Anonymous or other group that uses the 12-step program comes up, they're attacked for being religious indoctrination centers, or something equally hostile. It's not just the Buddhists who have trouble with the whole idea of higher powers. More and more, people are scrutinizing the 12-step approach and picking it apart. Yet for millions of people, it has worked. It's just a matter of adapting yourself and adapting the program to fit your needs. The next article I've got here is titled Genetic Enhancements, Abortion, and Buddhist Ethics. That's a lot of topics. And this is a more recent one. We're finally caught up. About a year ago, I was asked to do a short email interview concerning the Buddhist viewpoint on genetic manipulation and PGD, which is pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Essentially, this is a process that involves artificially fertilizing a number of human eggs, taking out a few cells and checking them for abnormalities, and then implanting the best ones. This removes the chance of a bad egg. (coughs) Ignore my pun. The very idea opens up a can of ethical worms. Here are the rapid-fire questions and my answers. I don't pretend to be an expert on the science behind it, but I have to say it's a fascinating topic. What do you think? Leave comments on the website. First question. According to Buddhism, is it moral to have a baby to provide for the medical needs of an already existing child? My answer? Probably not. But it all really depends on whether or not the second child is suffering. All of Buddhism revolves around relieving suffering, and if the new baby will suffer to fulfill the role of spare part donor, then that's not going to work out. If you mean the second child will be a caregiver of some sort then that's not necessarily suffering in itself. A lot of good comes from helping others, both in this world and in the realm of karma. 
Next short question. According to Buddhism, is it moral to attempt to have a child when genetic factors make it likely that the child may be mentally or physically handicapped? My answer is, it doesn't really matter. All life is sacred in Buddhism, even mentally or physically handicapped people. Next question. According to Buddhism, is it moral to try to select the sex of one's baby? And my answer to that one is, I don't think it applies. The majority of scientific and medical advances are embraced by Buddhists. If they're used to relieve suffering, they're considered overall a good thing. Next question. According to Buddhism, is it moral to abort a fetus if it's prone to obesity or has a chronic medical condition? And my answer to that. Generally, most, most Buddhists are against abortion, but it does depend on the situation. Your case would probably not be acceptable if there were no other extenuating circumstances. Next question. According to Buddhism, what is the moral worth of an embryo? Answer. That, like with any other religion, depends on whether you consider an embryo a person or not. Buddhists argue over this point just like everyone else. Generally speaking, it's probably safer to assume an embryo is a person, or at least a potential person. This leads to the whole abortion discussion, which isn't what you're looking for here. Next question. According to Buddhism, who should determine the genes of a person? Doctors? Parents? Or God? My answer. Buddhists do not have a God. Karma, perhaps. But many would just attribute this to random luck, beyond whatever the parents bring to the genetic table. Next question. What perspective does Buddhism take on the use of PGD treatment for both medical use and the enhancement of genes? Has the view on medical treatment changed among Buddhists or has certain ideologies continued since the foundation of Buddhism, particularly on the issue of genetic enhancements and PGD treatment? And my answer. Many say that the original Buddha was a doctor. Medicine that relieves suffering is a great thing and it's always good. Medicine that causes suffering, addiction, grasping at life that may be unnaturally long, and other wrong uses are not acceptable. PGD, like any of these other things, really depends on the motives and the reasoning behind their use. Next question. Why do you think religious groups accept the use of gene therapies and even the use of genetic modification for medical reasons but reject use for physical attributes only? And my answer. With Buddhists, fixing a medical problem would be relieving suffering, while choosing genes to have a prettier nose is simply vanity, which is unhealthy. Question. In your opinion, do you think religion and science can ever complement each other, or are they constantly conflicting with each other? And my answer. When science contradicts religion, religion must bend and adapt. And that's from the Dalai Lama, that's not me. Some religions go kicking and screaming into the future, and you know who I mean. Question. Do you agree to dealing with prejudices, such as skin and eye color, by biomedical fixes as a way of solving our social problems? No. If everyone were the same color, we'd find something else to hate people over. Racism aside, I think most people recognize that there really is strength in diversity. And the last little short question, if PGD treatment becomes increasingly popular, what do you think the consequences will be on society and on the relationship between science and religion? And my answer is, I have no idea, 
but I think we would all adapt. Comments? Questions? Agree or disagree with any of that? There's a lot of room for discussion on this topic, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Stop by at www.dailybuddhism, find that blog post, and comment with whatever it is you've got to comment about. Frustration, Anger, and Buddha A reader writes in, I've been living in China for three years now. I was raised a Jehovah's Witness and non-denominational religions and do not believe in the whole deity-being-God thing. Not that I do not believe in the concept of a divine creator, but something is out there. So I am in China and visit the temples, take photos and stuff, and become interested in the philosophy. Am I correct that Buddha is not a god? Buddhism is a philosophy? I have read a few web pages and see this may be a way to help me curb my anger issues. My anger manifests as frustration. Why frustration? Because I'm trying to find out information and others don't understand or I do not understand. So why the anger? Because I did not step back to figure out with understanding or enlightenment. I did not know what the real issue was to start with, that it was me not understanding all the variables of communication, others not understanding, and so on. So am I on the right path of choices to understand to go forward? My response. There are a couple of different questions here. First, Buddha is no god. Just a very smart or wise man who lived 2,500 years ago. He came up with a few very simple yet profound ideas that some call a philosophy, and others do, in fact, treat it as a very elaborate religion. You can go either way with it. Read more about Buddha and these ideas here on the site, or download the 60 or more episodes of the podcast and start from the beginning. There's also a book, which I'm trying very hard not to mention in every single post, but it's called The Five-Minute Buddhist, written by me, and is available at the link above. It sounds like you've given the second part of your question a great deal of thought. Yes, anger does often come from frustration, and frustration can come from miscommunication, ability to express oneself, and simply not knowing things you're expected to know by their society. After living in Japan for a time, I know well how frustrating it can be. Meditation can help with anger issues, regardless of the cause. Also, as you say, simply understanding the root causes of the frustration can help. You know now that anger comes from not understanding, and the best way to resolve that anger is by learning. Realizing how much you don't know, and making positive strides to learn, can make all the difference. To answer your final question, yes, it sounds like you are indeed on the right path now. And now we have our first guest post in over a year. This one is by Dr. Douglas Gentile, who writes the American Buddhist blog at usbuddhist.blogspot.com. He's been training in multiple Buddhist traditions since about 1989. In his professional life, he's an award-winning researcher, author, and university professor. What Does Meditation Do? by Douglas Gentile. Western stereotypes about meditation are interesting. People often initially come to meditation because they believe it will bring them bliss, or bring sudden enlightenment, or at least be a relaxing break from the stresses of the day. Yet instead, it often feels really bad, and people then believe they're doing it wrong, or that it doesn't work. But what does meditation actually do? 
There are many answers to this at many different levels of analysis, but at least in the beginning stages for most new meditators, it allows us to see how the mind works. It's constantly jumping. Emotions follow thoughts which follow emotions which follow thoughts, and on and on ad nauseum. Sometimes this is called monkey mind, although I personally think that's somewhere somewhat unfair to monkeys. By recognizing how easy it is to get trapped in this pattern of chasing every thought and feeling to the next, and how difficult it is to slow that pattern, it teaches us that we don't need to put quite so much faith in our thoughts and feelings. They will all change, even if we try to hold on to them. This can, al can allow us to not react when under their influence. We can refrain from automatically reacting. We can pause briefly and add some space, and perhaps even relax to see what will happen naturally. This can allow for a much gentler approach to oneself and to others. As an example, my girlfriend once told me that she didn't trust me entirely. She wasn't being unkind or attacking me. It was simply true. My immediate reaction was to feel hurt, and I immediately thought of all sorts of angry things I could say in response or to make a pronouncement about how we couldn't be together then. But it was bedtime, so instead I lay in bed and let my thoughts and feelings flow as they would until I finally slept, which was not particularly well. The next day, I was able to express my disappointment with her lack of complete trust, but I could also see how my behaviors had caused it. She was right not to entirely trust me. I had told her not to in several small ways. My disappointment was, in fact, equal to hers. She was disappointed that she wasn't able to trust me completely and to always be feeling as though she might lose this relationship soon. By recognizing that my immediate thoughts and feelings were not truth, and indeed were limiting my view as long as I focused on them, I was able to not be trapped into believing I had to act on them at the minute I was thinking or feeling them. Adding a pause allowed for a better view on the situation, and ultimately meant that we didn't even argue at all. Instead, we had a good conversation and a better understanding of each other because of it. If we consider the stereotypes about outcomes of meditation, this example doesn't fit any of them. At no point in this experience did it feel blissful, enlightened, or relaxing to me. But meditation had allowed me to see the nature of mind so that the thoughts and feelings didn't feel so solid or overwhelming that I had to do something at the minute I was caught in them. If I had, it would invariably have been less than skillful and would likely have made the situation much worse rather than using the opportunity to make our relationship better. And our next topic is schizophrenia and Buddhism. And a reader wrote in, Hello, I've just found your website and podcasts. I've wanted to start studying Buddhist philosophy since 2008 when I was volunteering in Nepal, but only now feel like I have the dedication to really pursue it. Right now I'm listening to your podcast 46, and there was a part that I wanted to address. In the podcast, you briefly talk about addiction and mind-altering substances and how they can make the mind less clear and so on. I do understand this perfectly clear, it makes sense, but I was just wondering what would, be, what would a Buddhist say about psychiatric disorders. I myself am schizophrenic and more or less understand that most heavier drugs imitate the effects of schizophrenia. That's why it sort of sprung into my mind 
What's also interesting is that I've been told that intense medication can actually be harmful for schizophrenics, that it may trigger hallucinations. Are there some precautions I should take before taking medications? So what would be your Buddhist view on schizophrenia and the like? I'm sorry if this has been answered somewhere on the site before, but I just felt like asking it myself. I've often wondered why I'm schizophrenic and what kind of attitude I should have about the whole thing. I'm not anywhere near finding my own answer. Most of the time I just dismiss the question and try not to think about it. I hope you could give me some insight into how Buddhism sees my disorder as. Maybe I then can find a new way of looking at the whole situation of my sickness. Best regards, from Finland. And my response to that. Just last week I put up a post, Magic Mushrooms, which revisited the topic of drugs and additions. See the previous podcast for that one. Generally speaking, most Buddhists see mind-altering drugs as bad, but there are limitations on that. I don't know the specifics of your case, but since you're on these medications based on your doctor's prescription, I would assume that you would suffer more without the drugs calming your mind than if you did without. From the Buddhist perspective, having a clear mind is very important to successful meditation, and good meditation is necessary to attaining enlightenment. Depending on the symptoms or effects of your schizophrenia, you probably have a hard time meditating on your own. The drugs may actually be beneficial in your case. It's unfair and unfortunate that you have this condition, but there isn't much you can do about that on your own. At least so doctors would tell us. If current science says drug X will help you, then by all means use it until something else comes along. Some drugs have side effects, and only you and your doctor can judge whether those side effects, like hallucinations in your case, are bad enough to merit changing prescriptions. Either way, you're going to have a hard time of it. Do your best, keeping in mind, keeping in mind the rules of karma, make the best of the hand you've been dealt, and live as an example for others. And last, I have a koan called Midnight Excursion. Many Zen pupils were studying meditation under the Zen master Sengai. One of them used to arise at night, climb over the temple wall, and go to town on a pleasure jaunt. Sengai, inspecting the dormitory quarters, found this pupil missing one night and also discovered the high stool he had used to scale the wall. Sengai removed the stool and stood there in its place. When the wanderer returned, not knowing that Sengai was the stool, he put his feet on the master's head and jumped down into the grounds. Discovering what he had done, he was aghast. Sengai said, It's very chilly in the early morning. Do be careful not to catch cold yourself. The pupil never went out at night again. And that's all I have for you this week. The Daily Buddhism runs primarily from your donations, and it's easy to help out. Just go to www.dailybuddhism.com donate and click on one of the options there. You can donate as little as a dollar or as much as you want. Keep in mind that the Daily Buddhism daily email no- newsletter is completely free. All you need to do is go to the site and sign up. If you'd like to get caught up on the show, all the back episodes are available on the website, And most of the best are included in the book, The Five-Minute Buddhist, available from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all other booksellers. 
Ask your local bookstore to order you a copy if they don't already have it on their shelves. And now, if you have a question on any Buddhism-related topic, send in your questions by email to dailybuddhism at gmail.com. And I'll see you next week.